0: So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, and said, to fulfill the law of the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine to a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word.
1: Well, I am sure all of us are familiar with what we would refer to as oxymorons. Oxymorons. If you're not sure what oxymorons are, you've heard it, There's a definition of them. It is an oxymoron is a self-contradicting word or group of words. Here are some examples for you if you have not heard them or perhaps maybe you'll hear some of them and be like, oh, that's an oxymoron. Good news, or excuse me, I should say old news, old news, old news, how can... Oh, it'd be old and new at the same time—old news, right? Bittersweet. How can sell something be both bitter and sweet? Civil war. It's an oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> right? Funny one. Jumbo shrimp. Uh, plastic silverware. <laughs> it, you'll get it. Plastic silverware. Okay, just take some time. Some of it. Some of us are a little slower. <laughs> <Some of it. laughs> This one, uh, this one we use quite a bit, working vacation, right? We all need to repent of that one, right? All of these phrases leave us scratching our heads a little bit, wondering how these contradicting words can be used together. There is no denying that uh, these oxymoronic statements seem strange and are sometimes comedic. But it's hard to deny how perfectly they convey or describe a situation or circumstance or, or thing. Bittersweet, the wine that we partake, it's both bitter and it's sweet. It just, it just captures the essence of it. Now, while these oxymorons leave us uh, perplexed, there is one phrase that we use that would have left The ancient world dumbfounded. What is that phrase you ask? The wonderful cross. The wonderful cross. We hear that phrase and rejoice. We read it or hear those words and don't even think twice about it. You, you just heard what Brad said, that, that in Georgia, they, they have images of crosses everywhere. They cross their heart, not even giving any thought to what it even means. But in the ancient world, they would have looked at us with shock and awe and horror if they walked in on us singing the glories of Calvary or at the cross. To be fair, we look we are looking back at the cross and have the revelation of the scriptures. We are also those who look at the cross on the other side of the resurrection. And therefore, the wonderful cross is not a perplexing perplexing oxymoron, but it is an overwhelming comfort. It is a joy to us. Oh, oh, the wonderful cross, we sing. But before we can see the wonder of it, we must come to grips with and embrace the wretchedness of it. You can't read our text this morning without first seeing the wretched cross, or as the hymn writer penned, that old rugged cross. Returning to the scene in chapter 19 of John's Gospel, we pick up the account after Pilate has delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And in order, I believe, for us to fully grasp the weight of what is going on here, we have to visit some details of the scene. We need to to, to understand some of the events and recall and rehearse some of the events of that fateful Thursday evening and that early Friday morning. Remember, Jesus had been arrested early Friday morning, after spending a long and an emotionally draining Thursday evening with his disciples as he washed their feet and, and taught them and, and prayed for them and ate with them. After his events, after the eventful arrest, he was taken to the high priest and then on to Pilate for what can only be described as a gross miscarriage of justice. What am I trying to get you to see? What am I trying to get you to understand, kind of rehearsing and looking back on the events of Thursday evening and early Friday morning? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not been to sleep. He has been up all, all night. He is sleep-deprived. No doubt hungry and thirsty. He was then beaten, but not just beaten, but whipped with a leather strap containing pieces of glass on the end of it that with every lash ripped through his skin. The details of this Roman practice are too gruesome to dwell on. To mock him, and inflict more torture, a crown of thorns was fashioned and and pressed down upon his brow, no doubt inflicting increasing pain upon his head. It is after all of this, then the Bible says that Jesus is delivered over. To be crucified. Crucifixion was the Romans' worst form of capital punishment. The practice was used for the vilest and most wicked criminals. This form of torture was meant to inflict pain, agony, shame, and hopefully be so gruesome that it would deter others who sought to defy Roman law. The cross was not an object of celebration. It was an object of fear and torment. John tells us that after Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, the, the, the cross he was to be hung upon was, was placed upon his lacerated and bloodied back And he was made to carry it to Golgotha, where he was to be put to death. We should also note that crucifixion was not a quick death. No, it was meant to be a slow, excruciating process that literally, literally drained the life out of you. Soldiers, was their custom, was to nail you to the cross, positioning you in such a way that it, re- it required you to lift yourself up in order to breathe. Historians note that most criminals that were tortured ultimately suffocated from exhaustion because they could no longer lift themselves up to breathe. They were just overcome with You see, brothers and sisters, the cross was wretched. It was wretched because of the physical pain it inflicted. It it sought to draw the life, to drain the life out of those who hung there. But it was also wretched because of the emotional pain it inflicted. Crucifixion was a shameful death. You were crucified publicly for all to see. It was often the practice of the Roman soldiers to strip you of your garments, spit upon you, and mock you. Jesus's journey to the cross was no different. He he was shamed and mocked. He was meant to to carry his own cross, stumbling under the sheer physical weight of it so much that he had to be helped with it, Luke tells us. John, as do all the gospel writers, record that Pilate ordered a sign to be placed above Jesus that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was not uncommon. Criminals who were crucified on the cross were fashioned. There was often a sign placed above their head telling them, telling people of the crime that they had committed. For Jesus, his crime, according to Pilate, was that he was King of the Jews. Oh, he did this. He did this to mock Jesus, to, to get at and, and needle the, the, the Jews. He was seeking to shame him by saying, look at this man who says that he is king of the Jews. This bloodied, beaten man hanging here on a cross. Is he king? He's your king of the Jews? The shaming of Pilate wasn't enough. It was a shame that came from the rejection of his own people. After seeing the sign that that Pilate put above Jesus, the high priest asked Pilate to change the sign to read instead, this man said he was king of the Jews. The high priest was wanting to make it clear to everyone who read it, we reject this man. He is not our king. We want nothing to do with him. The insults, the mocking, and the rejection, it was coming at Jesus this evening at a relentless And the emotional agony that he was experiencing was at a fevered pitch. Broken and beaten. Hanging there. The life draining out of him. The cross, brothers and sisters, was wretched. As you hear the horror that was the experience of the cross... Perhaps as you're sitting there trying to picture it and and trying to understand what's happening, perhaps what's what's going through your mind and what's perhaps deep in your spirit, you're you're asking questions like, why? Why was it so gruesome? Why, Why... did it have to be so bad? Why the mocking? Why the beating? Why all the blood? Why the shame? Why the horror? Why did Jesus have to suffer like this? And brothers and sisters, if those are the questions that are running through your mind and running through your heart, those are the right questions to be asking. Those are the emotions and the perplexing thoughts that should be running through your mind and soul. Because you and I, you understand, you and I must face and come to grips with the redness of the cross. Because as we stand, we try, Of the crucifixion, the hope is that in seeing the awfulness of the cross, we would see the awfulness of our sin. Because, as the hymn writer says, it was our sin that held him there. Listen, the cross at its bare minimum, was punishment. It was punishment. Jesus was being punished on the cross. Punished not by the Jews, punished not by Pilate or even those Roman soldiers who beat him. He was being punished by God the Father. Isaiah 53 and 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we know that he was being punished by God because of the type of punishment that he was enduring. Yes, the Romans perfected the gruesome and awful practice of crucifixion, but it was God and his providence that led Jesus to be punished according to the way sin was supposed to be dealt with. First, notice a detail in verse 17 that perhaps you wondered why it was there. In John 19, verse 17, it says, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Jesus tells us the location of where Jesus was going to be put to death and crucified. But please don't think this is an insignificant detail. Calvary, or what John calls here Golgotha, it was outside the city gate. Outside of the city, according to the law and the instructions given to Aaron, the burning of the sacrificial animal, the sin offering, was to be offered outside of the camp. It was to be a sign that sin was being removed from the midst of the people. Exodus 9:29, 13 and 14. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Listen, Jesus, Jesus being crucified outside the city, Of Jerusalem is no throwaway detail. In in fact, the writer to the Hebrews makes sure we make that connection. He says in Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned out The camp. And then he goes on to say, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the connection here being made. Jesus is being punished according to how sin was supposed to be dealt with. Not only was he crucified outside the city gate, we must take note of the method being used to put Jesus to death. Jesus hung on a on a cross or he hung on a tree. Now if you know your Old Testament you will immediately understand the connection. Deuteronomy 21, through 23 said, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. When a man was sentenced to death and that death was carried out by being hung on a tree, they were considered cursed by God. Brothers and sisters, the punishment for sin was death, but not only death, death upon a tree. And Jesus was being punished for the curse of sin. And we don't have to guess that. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians He makes the connection for us. Galatians 3 and 13, the second half, B, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, referring to Jesus. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, hung on a tree. Oh, we need not and should not miss the connections. The Romans may have been carrying out the punishment, but the punishment was ordained by the will of God. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, according to the definite plan of God. Crucified outside the camp, hung on a tree, beaten, bloodied, spit upon and mocked, shamed. Again, you may ask, why the necessity to inflict this pain? Why punish Jesus like this? He didn't do anything wrong. This is Jesus we're talking about here. This is Jesus, the one who healed the sick, the, the one who gave sight to the blind, the one who, when, 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 came, when he came across those who were hurting and, and distraught, he, he cared for them and, and loved them. That, that Jesus, the the one who identified with the marginal, who spoke up for this Jesus, he, he rebuked the religious hypocrites and, and he rebelled against the legalistic regulations of men. He didn't do anything wrong. Jesus didn't deserve to be punished like this. He didn't deserve the beating. He didn't deserve the shame. He didn't deserve to be, to, be, to be killed and crucified on the cross. But you do understand, we did. We deserved it. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, hung across upon the cross because he was bearing the weight of sin. He took on the the transgressions. He took on the shame and the guilt of all God's people. And what he was receiving there, although it seems like... uh, like it's too much. Seems like why he was receiving the just due for sin. Not his sin. Your sin. And my sin. He was being punished for. A songwriter asks Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? And, and you may be right in answering, no, no, I wasn't there. Liter- I mean, literally and physically, you were not there. You didn't see, you, didn't, you were not an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. But there is one thing you cannot argue with. If you are in Christ, your sin was there. It was there. It is there. The songwriter asks, were you there? Your sin was there was there all of it was there that the lie you told the outburst of anger the greed and the the lust the impatience and the worry and the fear the jealousy the the harsh words spoken the disobedience the pride need I go on all of your sin all of the sin you have ever committed all of the sin that you will commit it was there being nailed to the cross That's why Jesus was crucified. You now see why there had to be so much pain and agony on the cross. Your sin and my sin and the sin of every child of God who has ever lived and will live. Jesus was on the cross experiencing hell for them. That's what we mean when we, when we say in the Apostles' Creed he descended into hell. It, it's referring to the pain, the horror, and the sheer agony and punishment Jesus was experiencing in the crucifixion. All the punishment received in hell for the sin of God's people was being poured out on Jesus as He hung on the cross. It was a wretched, wretched cross. But it had to be so that we could see it as a wonderful cross. As a wonderful cross. Oh, you hear about the horrors of Calvary and you are perplexed trying to figure out how it could be so wonderful. How could you put those two words together? They seem to be contradicting statements. Wonderful cross, after that description of the cross, how could that be so wonderful? How could we celebrate what took place on that evening? How could the the cross be a symbol that brings now joy and, and peace and hope? Well, I believe our Our text gives us three reasons that prove it is right to see it as the wonderful cross. It is the wonderful cross because it is and it was the plan of God. One of the amazing revelations about the God of the Scriptures is that God's plans are always good. The, the comfort of God's sovereignty, which means that he is in control of all things, that he or, ordains whatever comes to pass. The comfort in that is knowing that God is good always, and he always does good. All his plans end in him receiving maximum glory and ultimate good for his people. And nowhere is that more demonstrated than in the cross of Jesus. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Jesus was delivered up according to the foreordained plan of God, but what lawless men meant for evil, God meant for good, because God's plan was through the wretched cross to save many. And you do understand that at no point did the plan change. At no point did it deviated from before the foundation of the world, God determined, to save a people through the death of his son. That was the plan from the very beginning, and that's how it was going to be. And John, in his account of the crucifixion, highlights some details so that we know and see God was in control the whole time. This was his plan. The first detail is found in John 19, verse 23 through 24. When the soldiers, it says, had crucified Jesus, quote Psalm 22 to call attention to the fact that what was taking place had long been planned. This was going according to the plan of God. And just like when Jesus declared from the cross, I thirst, Jesus Jesus, uh, utters it in verse 28, that too is a reference to Psalm 22. John does not for one moment want us to think something was going awry in the plan of God. Listen, we make, we make plans. We make plans all the time. But it, and it's not uncommon for those plans to change or to go awry. Here's the, here's the comforting thought. not God's plans don't ever do that. They don't ever go awry. His plans always come to fruition. And his, and his plan, Jesus, would be our substitute on the cross John is retelling, in his retelling of the account, is communicating all is going according to plan. Don't worry, this is according to plan. That is what according to Scripture means. It means God said it would happen, and now we are seeing what he said would happen, happen. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 bears this out. Regarding the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in what? In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. It is the wonderful cross because according to God's because it's according to God's plan. But it's also a wonderful cross because on that cross was crucified a loving Savior, a loving Savior. You know, it has been clearly, clearly, clearly demonstrated throughout our time in John's gospel that Jesus went to the cross willingly. He knew what the mission was, and he wasn't trying to duck the task at hand. But, but perhaps you're thinking that he simply went out of a sense of duty, or, or out of rote obedience. That, that's a possibility, right? That it is possible to be obedient and do what you're supposed to do without love. Growing up, when I was a teenager, it was my responsibility and my task to mop the floor every Saturday. I did it out of rote obedience. There was no love in it. It is possible to do it. But Jesus didn't go out, of, out to the cross simply with obedience, but he went out of love. He went, he went with joy. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus went to the cross with love. He was demonstrating his love for us on the cross, and that love and compassion that was Jesus's own. Old- even as he hung there in agony and in pain and suffering. In the midst of his darkest hour, he was pouring out his love and his care. John tells us that he hung there. And as he hung there, drawing what would be perhaps his final breath, he looks out on the crowd and he sees his mother. Oh, the one who gave birth to him. Oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus was fully human, the one whom she, whom she fed and cared for and watched running and playing. And now the one that she is there beholding, suffering, an unjust death on a cross. He sees her, and then he sees his good friend, the one whom he loved, We now know it to be John, standing beside her. He sees them, and his message to them is clear. Oh, love one another. Love one another. John 19, 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The loving Savior was laying down his life for his friends, and he was setting an example for his beloved. John, care for my mother. Mom, care for my friend. May the love I am pouring forth on this cross compel you to love one another. Isn't that applicable for us today? The cross of Christ signifies the love of Christ towards us, and that love compels us to love one another. 1 John three sixteen, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. An example for us. The cross was wonderful because Jesus was a loving Savior. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, the cross is wonderful because on the cross, Jesus declared, It is finished. Throughout, throughout this sermon series of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been keenly focused on the mission. He had come into the world for one purpose, namely to go to the cross. All of his messaging, all of his deeds was leading up to this point. And now it was complete. He could declare with full confidence that it was finished. This is what makes the cross wonderful. I think this is... um, my favorite part of the wonderful cross. Because when Jesus said it is finished, it was declaring the final word regarding the punishment for sin. On the cross, your sin and my sin was atoned for. Do you you hear that? On the cross, our sin was atoned. Your sins have been paid for on the cross. That's what Jesus meant when he said it was finished. It was done. The balance is zero. Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews describes it. This is glorious. And every, listen to this, and every priest when the the writing to Hebrews is talking about the sacrificial system and how it is completed in Jesus. Listen, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. That's why there was so much blood. That, they had to, that was why they, they had to have animals all the time. They were constantly bringing them. But it could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work was finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, that is the wonder of the cross. Every every sin has been covered. Jesus on the cross took away your sin. You say he took away all of it? He took away all of it. Yes. Yes, even that sin that no one knows about, the sin that you only know about, that, that haunts you, that, that keeps you up at night, that keeps telling you that you're guilty and that Jesus doesn't love you, he took that one away too. If you are in Christ, he took the punishment for you. He is not punishing you again. He punished Jesus for you. Oh, that's glorious. Not only is the punishment for your sin taken away, the enmity is finished. All those outside of Jesus not trusting the finished work on the cross have a relational problem. They are not right with God. They are his enemies. And brothers and sisters, it is no light or fun thing to be an enemy of God. But on the cross, when Jesus declared it is finished, the dividing wall of hostility between God and man was torn down. Those once his enemies could now be his friends. Those who were once far off could now draw near with, with boldness and receive mercy and grace. Oh, the enmity is over. My dad sings. He, he was part of a singing group when I was growing up, and he sings from time to time. And uh, I remember growing up, and he was, he was asked to sing in church. He would sing a song. It was an old Gaither song. Bob, you know the Gaithers, right? <laughs> an old Gaither song. And um, it was. I read this and was reflecting and meditating on this this week. It just kept coming to mind. Now, now I'm going to sing it for you because the singing skipped a generation. <laughs> But that's okay. Uh, The chorus said it is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There will be no more war. Oh, no more sin. No more enmity. If you are in Christ, your relational problem has ended. You have his favor. You have his ear. You are welcomed at his table. So run to him. Run to him. That is the reason why we can rejoice in something so wretched. Jesus took what was wretched and made it wonderful. He took what was gory and made it glorious. What was an instrument of shame, and he used it to shame his enemies. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Oh, the wonderful cross. It's wonderful because Jesus took what was wretched and made it wonderful. Is it a wonderful cross to you today? I pray that it would be that, that you would see it as glorious and sing with full
0: confidence. Oh, the wonderful cross. Let's pray.